0: Laura, how are you today? What is going on in your parenting world?
1: Um, well, I got my son signed up for two programs I'm really excited about. So th- the first one starts next week. In fact, this Sunday, he's going to start a comedy workshop. It's like it's an interesting eight-week comedy workshop at Gotham Comedy. It's called Kids in Comedy. So here I'm promoting this for them. Um and um, yeah, they actually get training under a professional comedian to show them how to use source material and write their own uh, write their own comic routine. So, it, and he is excited to do this. He actually wants to do this. We went to the show last month and he enjoyed it and uh, he wants to give it a try. Um, and then we got accepted into, I think it was mentioning about this college internship program this is a while back. I talked about this um, this summer program. and they have a campus at Lee, Massachusetts, in the Berkshires um, at Simon's Rock College. Um, it's not cheap. <laughs> it was not cheap, but we have managed to, you know, save enough money. And it's I think it's going to be a huge priority because I think it's really worth it. Um, you know, works on things like his, helping him develop his independent living skills while going to college. They specialize in working with neurodivergent students. And um, I'm really glad that his dad is helping me out with this, uh, with the tuition. So we're splitting the tuition half uh, 50-50. And um, I even convinced his dad to let him attend this comedy workshop, even though it um, is at the same time as church, but I said, look, it's only eight weeks, and that particular time is the most suited for him. And so he was willing to agree with, so he was willing to allow him to do this. So, so yeah, this is, um, yeah, this is, this is something that I'm really excited about.
0: Oh, those, those sounds like really great opportunities. I'm so happy for him. Especially no. That comedy sounds a lot, like a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, he's always been funny, even when he doesn't even try to be he's got this kind of strange, quirky sense of humor that um, just like you start laughing, even when, you know, out of nowhere, he says these things out of nowhere and you start laughing and And he's not even trying to be funny. He just says them and you start laughing. And I said, you know what, for years, I've been looking for this comedy workshop and I finally found it. I said uh yeah, we we should definitely try this out.
0: Well, you know, they say comedy is a sign of intelligence, so go for it. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So let me see, what's happening over here? Um I I I am officially middle aged. I'm in the middle. I'm um parenting up and parenting down. I got these kids. I got my my mom and my grandfather. So some days are just like, oh. Everyone needs something, everyone needs something. So uh, parenting has definitely uh, been uh, challenging in these last uh, week or two. And I feel like, uh, are we ready to even have a conversation about like parenting ain't all that it's cracked up to be?
1: Yeah, so that, that's, I don't know, maybe that's that should be another topic of ours, um, being part of the sandwich generation, right? Yes. Having- God, yes. responsibilities for your children and your parents. Yeah, at the same time.
0: But you know, speaking of parents, um, so grateful to my dad because, um, Josiah. Oh God, I always do that, right? Um, <laughs> my son is on spring break, and um, I sent him to 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 Georgia with my father for nine for nine days, and um, grandfathers and fathers are important, which leads us into today's um podcast where we talk about dadding in the pandemic yep. and flora got us some amazing dads. she knows everybody
1: it's years of it's over 10 years of work that i've been doing so that's how i managed to get to know so many people who, yeah. who are experts in these fields so
0: so you know what, let's just jump right into our episode because they did a really great job of, um, you know, describing themselves and their work. Yep. So good afternoon. Welcome, everyone. We've got three dads today that are going to talk about fatherhood, and we're so excited to have them here today. We have Aubrey LaGuerre, Derek Phillips, and Scott Leach. Um, So we're gonna take a a few minutes so everyone can introduce themselves. So I will throw it to
2: you first, Aubrey. Good afternoon again, everyone. My name is Aubrey LaGuerre, and I am the lead consultant for Dads Unlimited, a fatherhood consultancy here in the greater New York City area. I'm also connected uh, very vitally to many other fatherhood programs, initiatives, and interests, and uh, I'll pass the mic at this point to the next person.
3: Derek? Oh, okay. I'll um, I'm Derek Phillips. I'm the um, CEO and founder of Real Dad's Network. Um, in addition to that, I have two. I'm mad, Been married for 29 years. Have two children: um, Jordan, who is 26 years old, we got her own apartment recently. That's great. And Maya, my 22-year-old, um, who just graduated from Hampton University in um, three and a half years in December. Um, so, and um, I'm, and again, I'm just, I'm happy to be here, and thank you guys for inviting me here.
4: So I guess that leaves me as the, the one bringing up the rear, or floor. Floor could be not to me, but uh, my name is Scott Leach. I'm the director of DYCD Father Initiative here in New York City. I oversee uh, eight father contracts and do a lot of different work around New York City and New York State, and also uh, nationally. Uh, I'm part of a lot of national coalitions and groups and conferences that are that are coming up, and uh, I also run a um, a monthly event called the Barbershop, similar to this, where we have conversations on topics uh, similar to this. And also, I just got a new title last night at 11 o'clock as granddad. So my first grandchild uh, was born uh, at 11 o'clock last night. So uh, I got got another title, yay! So I guess I passed
1: it to Florida. Yep. Next. Um, well, yes. Yeah, so we want to thank all of you for um, being part of this, and this is really part of our um, work in terms of, as we were t- have been talking about parenting and how the pandemic has changed the dynamics of pa- of parenting. And um, in fact, it's we had a really wonderful conversation with Tara Gurney from Henry Street Settles, Settlement, which Aubrey and I have both worked with in the past. Um, well, she used to be work for Henry Street Settlement, I fix, um, and um, about the importance of co-parenting. And that's where I came with the idea that we really need to give dads a platform. But I'm going to pass on the, this back to Ebony.
0: So you know, we we really know that like in the world of you know social services, um, it's a tendency right to like overlook fathers, you know, as they're often you know viewed as non-existent or or only play a role as a financial provider and not necessarily a nurturer, right? Um, But when I think about my own father, which is actually for me like that's like the definition of manhood because like I had a really I have a really great dad, like, so um, how do we change like what the world sees as fatherhood, right? In child child rearing, right? And that it's often seen as um fatherhood is about being a disciplinarian, right? Um and oftentimes like fathers are emotionally distant um from their children, but that's not always the case, right? You know. Scott is just talking about becoming a grandfather and beaming, right? Derek, you're talking about your, your um, daughter just graduated HU, right? That's not just the role of being a disciplinarian, right? That's about being a nurturer. So Aubrey and Scott, can you speak to how we can change the dynamics so that social service and educational professions can more actively engage with dads, right? Seeing the value and the importance of fatherhood engagement while also acknowledging that there are so many fathers who are really actively involved in their children's lives.
4: Let me go first, Aubrey.
2: Oh, sure, sir.
4: So, um, so Ebony, first of all, uh, people who get into this field, they have to understand the history of, of how all this stuff came socially. Uh, and you have to go back, because you remember um, if you really go back in our history not just his story that is two different narratives. You know, in our history, uh, we were always there. You know, from slave time, slavery to back when we were on the motherland, we were always there. We were always present. But, even, but then it came that, you know, they wanted to break us up and put us down because they knew that uh, part of a family structure, if we stayed together, we will always be a strong unit. So they need to find a way of how to break us up And I would say in the late 50s, 60s, early 60s, that's when they really started trying to to bring up that very dynamic and the way that it came about in different ways. And people forget because that was a really financial struggle time, especially here in America, where that people couldn't find work, at least Black men couldn't find work. So once again, it was was another way of, of really strategically figure out how can we break this bond? And if you look back at run down that time, what happened was uh, mothers were giving an opportunity to say, hey, the government will come in and help support your family, but you can't have a man in the house. And I go back and think about, you know, I'm dating myself when some of you know, uh, 227 knows it, uh, 227 with Julia who was a nurse you know, uh, and she, you know, the social worker would come in and she would look in the, in the bathroom cabinet to see if there's a razor or something there. And then she find razors, and say, oh, we're cutting you off, you know. But also we have to understand the true history during that time, a lot of men opted out of moving away from the family so the family can survive. This man made a decision, said, listen, if the family has to go down, let me starve by myself. Let me let my family be able to to have a chance and make it. And even though that he wasn't physically in the house, no one counts that he was present, okay? A lot of times we do our and count, it's about the marriage license or who physically lives in the space. They don't talk about how present are we. Now, I think we're gonna talk about a little bit later, the studies have shown that out of all cultures, we are the most present fathers in the world, okay? So once again, you have to remember whose story or whose narrative you're listening to. And we have to dig a little deeper to find out the truth. Now, the other thing I would tell you that uh, one of the things that we have to help out and get better at, we have to allow boys to nurture early. You know, society tells boys that you shouldn't nurture, you shouldn't play with dolls, you shouldn't do this. You should always be the king, the king of the hill and stand there alone and try to fight off everybody who wants to be up, up next to you. And it's funny because women are taught to play what I call the Charlotte's Web. You wanna be in the center of a lot of people. The closer you are to the center, the better off you are. You, you have a great network around you and you're doing great. So also, I just watch women, they're looking to move to that center to have that greater network because they do to have more people they can, they can influence and touch and people can get back to them. Where we as men, we're taught to stand at the top of the hill and weather the storm by ourselves. So once again, we have to correct that and, and, and uh, usually the first time men are asked to be nurturers is at birth. Up until that time, we don't ask men to really learn to be part of nurturing. And then when I get it wrong at birth, now I'm ostracized. I'm thrown down the hill. I'm a negative. I'm a no good dad. For here, 25 years, no one gave me skill sets to do that. My first child was born when I was 33. Luckily, I did have some skills ahead of that. But could you imagine 33 years of not knowing anything about nurturing? And now this little one comes into the world and they say, You better take care of them. And then the other thing we look at, if you look back at the 80s, and I really go back to the 80s, um, the crack epidemic devastated our communities. You had to remember, you had, uh, first of all, you coming out of the 70s you already had a lot of men kind of segregated from their families. And those who were able to stay on were you know, just barely making it. And in the 80s, it just broke up the family altogether. At least you know in the, in the 70s, moms would be there. Moms would stay with the child. In the eighty, mom was gone. So here you had this child who didn't have a biological father, didn't have a biological mother. And the family was raising was grandma. And grandma's doing the best she can with five or six different grandkids of raising them the best she can. And if granddad is still present, he's trying to hang on to make ends meet with the family also. So once again, I go back to the narrative that, we're, that we get. And then I know sometimes we have to go back and I, I'm, I'm lucky and I think Walby is lucky and I think Derek's lucky also to be able to get in front of, especially those social work students who are just coming into the field and giving them the real life story. It helped them to change that book knowledge of what they're getting and say, you know what? It's okay to read that. But let me tell you what's happening in the real world. And then they come out and they have a different epiphany saying, wow, all the stuff I learned for four years of college, and then we're here getting my, my, uh, my social work master's degree or whatever it is, the LSMW. And they going like, wow, that narrative was never true. So we have to be
2: able to do that and help, help hey, hey Scott, let me jump in real quickly because you're touching on a couple of things. And um, I know we are trying to focus a bit on the social services sector and the uh, perception they're in. You know, my observation and Ebony kind of alluded to it from her personal experience. My observation about that particular setting, social services, Many families find themselves engaged in social services as recipients of assistance and need, which presupposes an absence or a deficit. And oftentimes that deficit is associated with the absence of sufficient provision and the absence of another adult in a household. And typically, as you alluded to, Scott, it is the absence of fathers. So in social services environments, there's almost a presumption based on the absence of a father in a household or family setting that fathers are generally absent. They can't help but to have that perception because most families, if you have a father or a man, okay, present and accounted for, the needs decrease typically speaking, so families that are healthy and functioning and strong um, generally are so because there are more people helping to carry the load, particularly fathers, husbands and men. So I don't blame and I'm really understanding uh, about how social services may overlook fathers because oftentimes the families that present themselves to social service providers are fatherless or don't have a father necessarily present. So what we really want to do is, as Scott was alluding to, is continue to train and educate and inform and edify those coming into the profession about the real deal, the actual history, as well as the very tangible and strong presence of men in the lives of many more families than you'll ever see as a social services professional. You don't hear about the good, but the good predominates. The perception obviously is driven by the minority and those minority in number are families that have needs that grow out of the absence or the lack of contributions from a um, male presence husband or father. So so uh, social services, they have their hands
4: full. So Aubrey, let me tell you, I had the opportunity to present to some social workers in the field Mm -hmm. who've been on the job for quite a while. First of all, what I found out in the group that that I was meeting with, we all kind of gravitate what's close to our real lives. So a lot of the social workers that were in the field, they had broken relationships. And unfortunately, as much as we say, we wanna be professional, listen, a lot of our personal stuff creeps into our day-to-day work all day long. So that was one issue. And if you look at the ratio of women to men working in the field of social work, was it like 23 to one? And if there's a male presence in that unit, he knows he better be very careful with how he opens his mouth. In, in the conversation of what's happening in the field, because he has 23 others that can you know, can, can work up on him. So, so that's it, that's one thing. And then the other thing is, why would a man want to go into a field that has, dim, has dim, dim, destroyed me from everything, anything I know about social work is negative. So I've talked to him, I said, well, first of all, you have to find a way of getting men to want to come into this field of work and you have, I said, you have to show them earlier in life that you know what this is a positive honorable way of making a living this is how you can make a difference i do believe if you had more males in the field of social work throughout the social work that was a little bit balanced even if it was 60 40 i think you would see a lot of different changes in the dynamic of the work that is happening but it is so lopsided and they even had to say when i talked to them they said, "Well, first of all, Scott, you're cutting too deep." They said, "Pull the knife out a little bit." <laughs> you say, "Because they start recognizing, like, yeah, I, I was talking to them. How many of them have?" Without them raising their hand, how many of you have have uh, baby drama daddies and stuff like that? that you know, you see the shifting in the seats and stuff. I said, "How many of y'all grew up with your father present in your house?" You got some more shifting in the seats. And so once again, this is part of their their, their social makeup what they bring into the job and that, unfortunately, it's very hard to take out your personal biases in work. And I know we go to all kinds of bias, bias trainings like that. But let me tell you, and when a crisis happens and we have to think quickly and fasten your feet, that bias is right in place. So those are some things I would say that to me is really great doing that, especially once again, I worked in foster care at a, lot of, a much early age and worked with boys who were in group homes. And the way those boys were treated in the field, in, social, in the social work field at the age of, say, five to 18, why would they even want to do that? That's like asking the average boy in New York City, you should be a police officer when you grow up. Like, you got to be out your mind. <laughs> police officers have been kicking my butt for, <laughs> for, for 15, 20 years. Why would I want to go into that field? So, but you have to understand that and if they want to say, listen, hey, if police officers were doing, like I would say, when they have um, PAL, and I use them, for example, and they had uh, cops and kids, sports activities, those kids have a they wonderful relationship sorry, with I police think. officers. You know, and and even police officers who come um, into you, they will tell you no, about their um, younger say, interaction with so police good. officers. It was yeah. always good. Uh, so they, so they, they feel
3: that. Sorry. so sorry. I so hope oh, I'm not too Go long. I, okay. I, I
1: so um, I, I'm, I'm actually glad that you brought that up because there's also, I, I think part of the issue sometimes too, is even among not even among I think even among Asian and white and Latin social workers too. There's also this very mindset of that dad, is a provider. And that's why I went back to that thing It's like, yeah, dad's around, but he's, he's a provider. He, he, in fact, he's working all day. <laughs> that, that, and, uh, you, uh, and I think that really gets into it. And I, I can say myself as a mother, when I talk to a teacher or, uh, you know, anyone that works with my children, the first thing I say is, you know, you can talk to his dad too. You know, you can talk to his dad, you have his dad's phone number, <laughs> Give him a call, and they never do. And I, I think it really does. It, it, you know, Aubrey and I used to have these discussions when we worked too in the past. Is that it's really changing that mindset? And yeah, if you're not, if this is not what you're used to, you're you're not going to. Um, and but this goes back to even uh, where really curious how did all of you decide to get involved in this work of fatherhood engagement why is it important to you um,
3: I guess I'll, oh. that. um in, in regards to how i got involved in this work is that um when i was growing up i'm the youngest of four brothers and three sisters and my dad was not around really at all so i didn't really know my dad one day me and my nephew were standing outside and two men came up and said they were our fathers. And we let them in the house and they sold our TV. So I didn't know my father at all. And, you know, and at this time, I remember I was also perceived as this bad child in my household because I played hooking in the first grade, I played hooking in the second grade, I got left back in the second grade, I played hooking in the third, I got um, played hooking in the fourth. My mother said the only thing she ever wanted in life was to see me graduate from high school. My mother died when I was 10, all right? And I remember the night of the funeral, before the funeral, there was all this conversation around who's going to take Derek. Nobody wanted to take me. None of my relatives wanted me. So that was the whole conversation. I remember just laying on that bed that night and saying, I wish, My dad was around and I said, if I ever have children, I'm going to make sure that I am there for my children. So eventually my oldest sister, who was at the time, she was only 26 and she took all of us in and she had three kids, you know, so that it was a very dysfunctional home, but that's what I grew up in. But I made that promise to myself at the age of 10, that if I ever have children, I was going to make sure that I'm there for them because my father was not there for me. So go forward, I have my two girls. I am very, very actively involved. I changed diapers, the bottle, everything. And then people started to see me and they says, wow, you are Mr. Mom, you are Mr. Mom. And it really felt good to be called as Mr. Mom. But then I realized I'm not a Mr. Mom, I'm a father. And when it comes to fathers, especially black fathers, they try to call us everything other than what we are, present and involved. So I said, you know what? I want to change this narrative. So in 2000, I actually did the first documentary that was ever done that focused on positive black fathers called Real Dads, Black Men on Fatherhood that had commentary by the late great Ozzie Davis. And as a result of that documentary, what I realized is that a lot of men and fathers really wanted a place to go to get resources and to get support and there was nothing available. So in 2004, I created Real Dads Network. So Real Dads Network was that organization where fathers can go to get resources and get support. We started out, we had Real Dads Week. We're the only organization in the country that have been doing Real Dads Week since 2008. Real Dads Network, we've done the daddy-daughter dance. Since 2008, we've influenced directly Chicago, Philadelphia, New Jersey, Virginia, to do daddy-daughter dances. We have a Real Dads Award Ceremony. We've given over 250 awards away to dads and fatherhood leaders. We have a Real Dads Scholarship. We have given high school $1,000 scholarship to high school graduating seniors. We have a Real Dads Club. We were meeting in person, but prior to the COVID, when COVID hit, we started meeting virtually. We've been meeting online. We have not missed one week. March will make two years. We have not missed one week in two years. We have dads that are there from around the country. We have dads that are there from Nigeria, from London, from Japan. We have speakers that are coming in, professional speakers like Jeff Gardea, talking about all issues related to fathers. So I got involved in this work because I knew there was a there was a A need for fathers to be for a place for fathers to go and also to change the perception. One of the issues when we talk about fathers is that we always say this thing about 70% of Black children are growing up without their fathers. That is totally 100% false. But what is true is that 70% of the children are born to unmarried mothers. So what it means is that when the mother had the child, they just weren't married. That's all that means. But in many instances, what we know, based on the research and the data, that the majority of fathers, especially Black fathers are actively involved in raising their children. And the person who suggested that, the research is clear. I I knew that in 2000, based on the research, but CDC in 2013 did their own research and CDC reported in 2013 that Black fathers are more actively involved in raising their children than any other ethnic group. This is a fact. So, my whole thing in regards to Real Deaths Network, what we do is that we present positive Black fathers, and what we do is we change the perception. We don't just talk about it, we back it up with evidence and research. So that's what we do at Real Deaths Network. And that's how I got into this work to change the narrative, not just talk about it, but to support it with evidence and research.
1: By the way, I just want to add that that study did not include Asian deaths. Just maybe it's because we're not. Were a large enough percentage, but it did not include Asian
4: dads.
0: <laughs> you know, it's interesting because the the best advice that I got when I became a mom was from my father. He said, "Pick that baby up every time it cries. Every time he cries, pick him up, comfort him, so that he will know that you are there for him." And my my father told me that right. And and that and, and getting back to what Scott said right. Dads are nurturers. How do we help boys become nurturers?
4: And, and one, one thing I thing believe that uh, research has shown also that when men ask children to achieve things, children will try very hard to be the best they can and achieve. Doesn't matter my status as a male, but just my presence asking a child to achieve. And they've seen that. Fall down drunk dads say, hey, I want my child to graduate high school. Those, those drunk dads' children, for some reason, they, they make that achievement. <laughs> you know? So well, the thing is, we have to position men the right way. One of the things is that I, that I believe, is my belief, and I push for my work here at DYCD with, uh, with the agencies that we provide. Most fatherhood programs, if, if you study any of them are workforce uh, development programs. Because once again, they, they want dads just to be a bank. Okay, we don't believe in that. What the belief is, and I've been trying, to, I've pushed around since the work I have. If dad has a relationship with the child, he will bring all kinds of stuff to the table. Money is nothing, you know? but why am I bringing my wallet? I don't get to see you. So we're trying to, I'm trying to break down that, that wall and that understanding that if you make dad's present in children's lives, he will kill himself to get that child everything that child needs that child will get more than what they normally do. And the studies have shown. Even, even if you go back and look at child support studies, fathers who engage with their children on a regular basis pay more than those fathers who don't, pay, don't, have, don't have contact with their children. So, so it's just, it's just but once again, remember, this is a business too. They make a lot of money in keeping people, a lot of people employed by keeping this narrative out there also. You know, we don't wanna fix
3: what keeps the engine working. Yeah, and, and Scott, to your point, when we, when we are talking about fatherhoods, we're not saying that fathers, you know, children don't need mothers. Okay, so we gotta sometimes make this very clear. Um, but we do know based on the research, right, that children do better when both parents are actively involved. So children need their yin and their yang. So when one of those sides are missing, what happens with our children is that they go through life off balance. You know, so, and I always look at, you know, from a sport perspective, I say, you know, if the game is on the line and this you know, game is on the line and you have someone who might be shooting, I'm just sick., oh, my phone just um, is ringing. So I got to turn it off. If the game is on the line, when you have two parents, right? So maybe you're going to the line. If you have one parent, maybe you're shooting only 60% with one parent involved. If you have two parents involved when you are going to the line, maybe you're shooting at 80%, 85%. There's no guarantee the shot is gonna go in either side, but the percentages are a lot higher when you have both parents. So if the game is on the line, I want my 85% free throw shooter shooting the shot as opposed to my 60. And when we're dealing with our children, their life is on the line. Their life is on the line. And what they need is that they need both parents to be actively involved, for them to be successful.
4: And and as Derek will contest, I contest too now, how much our daughters need us in their lives. You can't imagine in our daughter's report later in life, how, like like you just, uh, Ebony, how important we are. We have to teach them that also, that your presence sets the bar. And, And most studies will show girls marry their fathers. Good or bad, that's what they marry. Because their boyfriends have a lot of of attributes of their daddy. (laughs) But once again, that's her first boyfriend. That's her first male relationship. And that's how she has been groomed and understanding this is what man is. This is what manhood is. If you had a daddy that was loving and protective, ain't no brother can just step up in in there and say, hey, yo, I'm here. That won't happen. I remember one of my uh, friends uh, told me that when he, when he uh, took his daughter to school, she, you know, she wanted her own apartment on campus. And what he did, he found an old pair of his work boots and put them outside her door. And he said, baby, don't ever touch your boots. You leave them out your front door outside. You think people didn't know or people didn't think there was a male presence there? And he was hundreds, hundreds of miles away. But he knew I had to do something to protect my daughter even when I'm not there. And I thought about that. So my daughter moved out. I found me some more boots. (laughs) You know
0: what? It's interesting that you said um, fatherhood doesn't take away from motherhood. Um, And I'm probably going to say something a little controversial, but I really don't care with folks' comments. It's like, do not text me on Father's Day and tell me I'm doing a good job. I'm not a dad. Do not. Right. Text him. He's the dad. And that, you know, it took years of having to repeat that to people for them to get. Listen, just because we're not together does not mean that my kids don't have a dad. My Actually, my <laughs> sons live with their dad. They come to me on the weekend um, because I moved. But they are with their father because they are teenagers. I have two teenage sons. they going to run me. Right. <laughs> But it's important that women understand that even if you're a single mom, you should still have men who are still present in your child's life, and that doesn't take away from you as a mom, right? Like, I've never been someone who's like, oh, men are this, because all the men in my, my family are stand-up men, right? Like, my sons have examples of what manhood looks like. They're uncles their grandfather, they, you know, here, my great, my grandfather lives here, right, so they see their great-grandfather, so they they see generations of men, and generations of fatherhood, and it's very, very important, and it it takes nothing away from me, as a woman, as a mom, as a mother, to say that they got a daddy, go text him happy, (laughs) on this day, don't text me that, because you're not texting him happy mother's day, or mother's day, so stop.
4: So, so Ebony, I always tell women, when I hear them say that, I said, please stop saying this, especially don't say it in front of your in front of your sons. And they said, Why? I said, because you're teaching him he doesn't need to be present. Mm-hmm. So how you so how you raise him to be a strong man when you're telling him he doesn't need to be present? Because she'll take care of all everything.
3: Your point. And Ebony, to your point, in order for us to really change these narratives. It really requires um, all of us being on the same page in regards to what's important. So, when we are speaking to our children, it's important that we're saying the same message. So, not because I'm a man and you're a woman. No, you can't be yin and yang. You just can't. You can't be that. That's not who you are. And when you're trying to be that, you're setting your child up for failure. So, we have to be on the same page. And we got to, and sometimes we, in terms of uh, men and women, we have to get rid of that pettiness. Because, I'm, and I tell parents at the end of the day, guess what, you're not that important. It's not about you, it's about the child. So what do we need to do collectively to work together to develop and raise this child? We can hate each other's guts, but at the end of the day, we have to love this child and that child should not know. You know, we have dads, when dads come to our club, let's say, listen, let me tell you something. At this club, we don't, we don't sit up here, we don't knock women. We don't talk bad about women. Our whole goal is to uplift women. And you're not gonna come in here talking bad about the mother, because guess what? Especially with the child, do not tell the child anything bad about the mother because guess what? The child loves his or her mother.
4: And Ebony, children have to see adults argue, fuss and fight and build a team unit, okay? I get on ACS all the time just because parents had a disagreement and then you separate the children from from them, they only see the fight. They never see the healing and listen, Derek and I got it, we, 25, 30 years almost in, in, in this family. There's been a lot of healing, okay, you know, and a lot of sacrificing on both sides. You know, I'm pretty sure. Even like, my girl go home today. My wife's gonna first gonna say, "Why did you walk in this house with your shoes on?" I just like, that's just me. You know? So I have to learn to okay, this is what she wants. I have to give it to her, and I understand she don't want outside dirt in the house. So we have, to, so kids have to learn that. And then that will take it into their next generation of, of familyhood and how they see life. So we have to, to sh- show that aspect of it also.
1: I think they're actually beginning to train CPS workers about that, that, you know, look, you know, even in ish, even in really discordant relationships, it's like, does the actual separation, is it more traumatizing than whatever, discord is going on Um, you know and of course every family is completely different so but that also goes into I think some of the discussions that we're having now is that so one of the reasons why Ebony and I created this podcast is because this pandemic has brought on a whole set of challenges for us that we didn't have to deal with before Um, and we were very interested in hearing the dad's perspective um and then of course there's issues of family court too I've been reading all these articles of you know these virtual family court sessions and what's working and what's not working um because we always have to think about custodial dads as well as non-custodial dads so what are some things that you're seeing in the how do you think that how has the pandemic brought on more challenges for dads because we've been a lot of our Uh, most of our podcast has been mainly mother focused, you know, but we definitely wanna hear the dad's perspective on all of this and how parenting during the pandemic has, the challenges that that parenting during the pandemic has brought on.
2: Let let, let me share a little bit about my experiences and perspective. Um, Firstly, The premise is that there are always challenges in our lives, family, professionally, socially, always challenges. There are some situations as in this pandemic that exacerbate and uh, elevate and serve to intensify those challenges. So as it relates to fatherhood and fathering and fathers, in the pandemic, if you were not present as often or as much as you would like, the pandemic intensified that. If your resources were limited and you could not do as much as you would want to, the pandemic exacerbated that. If there was tension between you and the mother or the guardian, or whatever surrogate parent is responsible for your child. And Scott talked about his group home experiences and I've worked in those settings for over 30 years in different capacities. If you could not visit and spend time and come in contact, all of those things that were already challenges for fathers were just made more challenging. But it didn't really add anything new and the question really is and remains. What is your plan? What is your process? What are you committed to doing to ensure that you are your best self as a dad, regardless of the situations? And this is where organizations like Real Dads and agencies like Scott and DYCD are bringing practical solutions to bear on these situations because they're providing the type of programs and services and resources that help dads who realize that they're functioning suboptimally because of external circumstances. There are places where they can receive help, assistance, and support so that they can overcome those challenges. So, we don't want people to think that they have an excuse oh, there's a pandemic, I can't do better. No, you can and you must. And regardless, of what the limitations, obstacles, and hurdles are, there are ways to submit and overcome that, but you may need to hear that from someone who is not going to make it comfortable for you because when the waters rise, you just have to rise with them. If you allow your child to think that because things are not going easily or smoothly, it could be for them in school, in the community, or in other settings, if you allow them to think that external forces are determinative of life outcomes for them versus their own choices and decisions that they make for themselves, you're setting them up as well to fail. So we know that the pandemic is a real thing, but challenges already existed for dads. If they were not custodial, if they were not financially capable of doing certain things, if they personally didn't possess a certain type of, agency with respect to their own selves and their own health, well-being, and wellness. All of those things were just made worse, but they're not reasons or excuses to opt out and take the back seat and let others decide what's best for their child or children. So pandemic real, but the responsibility remains the same. Whatever comes your way as a father, as a parent, You have to find a way to meet that. And if you don't have it within yourself, there are people and places and things like Real Dads Network, DYCD and their fatherhood initiatives and many others that can help support you because we all received some type of stimulus over the last two years. I don't care what the form was. We all got a little help. And this is still a time where dads need a little help and I'm glad there are good people like Derek and Scott who are doing that type of work.
4: Well, to, to add what you're saying, I will tell you uh, with uh, the father programs that, I was, that I'm overseeing and working with, and even others, and I know Derek's probably group did this too. In some aspects, we made dad the hero because we were able to give them resources to go take back to the house. They weren't resources for him, it were resources for the family. We were able to give out, you know. how many tens of thousands of pair of diapers, how much milk we were able to give out, food cards to go to the grocery store to fathers. And once again, those were major gifts going back to the house because everybody was working, you know. And if you had to go stand in a line at a pantry waiting, you are there for a long period of time and you may not leave with anything in your hands. Now what we did know, I tell you during the pandemic, at the first part of the pandemic, which was really upsetting at least to me, I I would say that many of our fathers, uh, we lost a lot of fathers during that time because they had nowhere to shelter in uh, because of just rules and regulations and policies around the city that uh, if he's not on the lease, he can't be in the the house. So, I mean, I got reports coming back that uh, some of my fathers were were found frozen in the park. Uh, They were in a fire, an abandoned building, got killed. You know, but people don't talk about those things, and here are men who, you know, before the pandemic, they were working, they were making ends meet, they were just barely getting by, and everything shut down, and these were guys who were making hourly pay, so if they didn't show up, they didn't get a check, you know, and then the other thing that happened to a lot of our fathers, which was a slap in the face, that when they did give the stimulus package out, you know, that money were giving out to fathers, many of our fathers reported they actually got a Donald Trump check with zeros on it because they owe child support. So, so why do you even waste the paper, of sending me a slap in the face of a check that says zero? You owe child support. And once again, they were going to the house, and they were—if they were lucky to be able to go shelter in, they were sheltering in in a one-bedroom with fifteen people.
3: No privacy. Yeah. And that's, you know, when we ask, you know, how, how things been, to Scott's point, it's the same It's still systemic racism, you know, and that's something that we continue to deal with, you know. But I think also we have to also um, talk about policies. We have to change policies, but we also have to hold people accountable. And I say this because I'm going to say something that I don't think a lot of people know about this. There was a bill called the Commission on the Social Status of Black Men and Boys. It was a bill that was sponsored by Frederica Wilson. And this bill states that historically, federal agencies have created policies and have created obstacles and barriers that have prevented Black men and boys from succeeding. Frederica Wilson supported this bill out of Florida. It passed in the assembly. And then Mark Rubio passed, sponsored the bill In the Senate, it passed in the Senate. August 2020, Trump signs into law the Commission on the Social Status of Black Men and Boys. That is now a law that we are very clueless about. That is a law and this law states that historically the federal government has created policies that created obstacles and barriers that have prevented Black men and boys from succeeding and this commission is to come up with recommendations to change that we need to hold that commission responsible for what this not bill
1: but law is so what is some
0: like general advice that you would give you know, fathers right now. I mean, you talk about that law, but I'm like, what are we as a community gonna do? Right? Cause I'm not I'm not waiting for um a policy. I need to save my sons right now, right? So what are what are some um what's some advice that you could give fathers right now?
3: Um I'm gonna say
2: two things. Hey Derek um, Derek, Derek 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 let me let me jump in and I'm gonna let
3: you two close
2: out, okay? because I
3: know you'll have more. That right, sure. Let me just go back real quick before you jump okay. in. Because Ebony, um, I understand what you're saying, but we gotta also understand that we live in a society that revolves around policies. So when I saw one of the things that we created in terms of Real Dads Network was a Real Dads mm-hmm. Vote because you have to vote. The only way you're gonna change policies and conditions is if like you gotta vote and hold people responsible. So in terms of what can dads do, they can continue to do what they're doing, which is one, understand that their children come first. It's not about them individually. But also that men right now, this is one of the things that we always talk about, you have to take care of yourself. Because what happens is that we have been socialized to say that we are the strong ones, we have to be the ones that have to do it all. And we're always focusing on everybody else. But if you cannot, if you do not take care of yourself, then you're not gonna have the energy and strength to uphold your families. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah,
2: no, um, if 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 you want to continue, I, I was just going to simply say something broader in general, knowing that you and Scott probably had more particulars that you wanted to share. But to your question, Ebony, simply fathers have to have a plan, they have to have a program, they have to have a process and they have to be true to that regardless of what the circumstances are. So you hear an expression often these days, trust the process. But a lot of dads, a lot of fathers don't really have something concrete and specific that they're necessarily specifically trying to accomplish and achieve on a day-to-day basis. Whether they're in the home, out of the home, young children, older children of means lacking we have to continue to engage and educate and equip and edify and exhort men and dads to be present and accounted for in the lives of their children. If they don't have a plan, it's really hard to assess and evaluate what type of progress they're making and how their children are prospering and profiting as a result. So I think ideally, especially in this age, we want men to be more conscious of and intentional about what it is that they see themselves doing as dads. If the premise is that dads matter and the principle is that they have to be actively involved in the lives of the children, then what is the actual, for lack of a better term, right? What is the practice that they're engaged in? And if men are not wrapping their heads and their hearts around those types of issues and concerns, they're gonna continue to be tossed to and fro by the winds of change and circumstance. So I just know that we have to, all of us, have to continue to encourage men to think about what type of dad they wanna be. Do they want to be a father or do they want to be a real dad? And the more we do that and challenge and encourage them to think about that because programs aren't successful, people are, and each dad has that opportunity to really be that type of success, even hero, as Scott said, uh, in the lives of their child or children. Scott,
4: and I got to get ready to run, and um, I, I want everybody to understand there is a real difference between a father and a dad. <laughs> and and a lot of people say they don't they don't see the distinction, and the distinction is so it's, it's nice and clear. A father is biological, that's it. A dad is present. And this is proven that even children who are not biologically connected to that man will ask him, can I call you a term of endearment, dad, because you are present. So when you talk about, you know, every every father can't be a dad, okay? Because a dad is someone who's present. And once again, I want to thank you for having me on. I, you know, I got to run. I got another engagement <laughs> to get to. But uh, once again, anytime that you can, you, we can help you out. Uh, DYCD, you can you can uh, send to uh, you can write to me, or you can write to, straight to uh, Fatherhood at DYCD That's the email box that I have to collect information. Uh, we have programming services throughout the five boroughs. Most people know of DYCD only for what we do with summer youth employment and summer and after school program. But we have a huge footprint that we do community service activities. And once again, those things that we do, please visit dycd.com and once again, see all the different services. Just don't look at the youth service side, look at all the services, look at the community service side of services that we have to offer. And we're great because we're, we're really focusing on the whole family here DYCD, our commissioner who's still around. Thank God he hasn't left yet, but he, he says that he's, he's interviewing other commissions, hopefully to get in and take his job, uh, but he wants to leave. But I would say that while he was here, he had a great understanding, he had a great uh, thinking of that we were talking about a settlement house of, a, of this organization, that we wanted to service the whole family, that just because a child comes in, we want that child to be able to get avenues to their family members, whether it's grandma, grandfather, dad, you know, sister, brother, we want whatever entry a person comes into DYCD, we want to be able to give them services throughout their family. So thank you, uh Ebony, and thank you, Flo, Flo that have me. And I really, and I once again, my brothers, Eb, uh, uh, Aubrey, you know, I love you, man. And Derek, you know, I'll see you a little bit later tonight. Derek, <laughs> nice baby, Okay. God bless.
0: Well, I think that that's a perfect place to leave it. What do you think, Laura? I
1: think that is right.
0: Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you, Aubrey. Thank you, Derek.
2: You're welcome. You're welcome. (laughs) Thank you, my brothers. And thank you, ladies, for having us. Thank you. Thank you, guys.